you have a Bible this morning, um, we're going to encourage you to take a reading from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2. And um, what's been in the water lately, my thoughts have been a little unclear. I know what I'm supposed to preach on this morning, but just don't have a good sense of how to deliver it to you, much like last week. And so, pray the Lord will help me to convey to you what would be His will today. Ecclesiastes, chapter 2. And I think we'll begin to read in the 18th verse. And when you find that, you might have a finger on James chapter 1. We'll take two verses from there as well before we begin our message this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. This is Solomon writing um, this book. Beyond the prophetic books that involve the future, um, Ecclesiastes is a strange book. It's a hard book. Um, There's a lot of um, perceivable contradictions. They're not contradictions. Um, But there's some, some hard things to understand here. Uh, But the preacher has the wisest man to ever be, other than Jesus, has zoomed out and considered life as a whole. Just the strangeness of life. And um, I think if I was to use one word to describe what the preacher says here in Ecclesiastes, it's an enigma. An enigma or enigmatic means full of a lot of things that are just hard to reconcile together about life. Isn't that true? There's a lot of things that you just, you try to fit together and and gain understanding. You take what the Bible reveals and we put those on as our lens through which we see the world. And then our own life begins to unfold and the world around us begins to unfold And there comes these moments where we say, this makes no sense at all. And through Ecclesiastes, Solomon points out some of those things that are hard to be understood in this life. Uh, But we're going to begin reading again verse 18. And read down to the end of the chapter in verse 26. It says this, Yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun, because... I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. And who knoweth whether he shall be a wise man or a fool? Yet shall he have rule over all my labor, wherein I have labored, and wherein I have showed myself wise unto the sun. This is also vanity. Therefore I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is in wisdom, and in knowledge, and in equity. Yet to a man that hath not labored therein shall he leave it for his portion. This also is vanity and a great evil. For what man hath of all of his labor, and of the vexation of his heart, wherein he hath labored under the sun? For all his days are sorrows, and his travail grief. Yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. 
There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink, and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw, that it was from the hand of God. For who can eat, or who else can hasten hereunto more than I? For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight wisdom, and knowledge, and joy. But to the sinner he giveth travail, to gather, and to heap up, that he may give to him that is good before God. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. If you look in one other place, as a thought today, James chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Reference this verse a lot lately. It says this, Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. The title of our message, based upon those two scriptures reading, and perhaps a few more today in time, is Utterly Dependent Upon the Lord. Utterly Dependent Upon the Lord. I think very often um, I've preached and when you talk, when you think and give God gratitude for your blessings <clears throat> and we hear the verse in James, every good and perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights and we think of what those gifts are. I think perhaps we think of our material blessings and we should because those are gifts from the Lord. Every vestige of cloth you have is a gift from God. Every dollar that you have in your account, big or small, is from the Lord. We venture from our material blessings, perhaps, and especially if you're older, you begin to thank God for your health. And as insignificant as it is, any time that I get sick, it's like this gentle reminder from the Lord to have gratitude for the moments of health. And I notice in our older people that they give thanks for their health much more than younger people because they're much more aware of what a gift that it is. We go from there and we acknowledge that salvation is a gift from the Lord. The Bible is clear that this morning, if you're lost, you can do nothing to even feel the draw to the Lord. Even feeling drawn. That's what Jesus taught us. That being drawn by the Holy Spirit to seek after God is a gift in the hands of our sovereign God. And then the moment where God saves us, there is nothing in the creature's power that causes him to get salvation from the Lord. It is bestowed as a gift. And because it was given by grace as a gift, it is retained by grace. So the fact that it was given to you by grace 
And the fact that you're going to have it from that moment forever is not dependent upon your works. And praise God for that. Your works are not going to cause you to go to heaven or hell after you've been saved. God's goodness and His love and His mercy and grace allows you to keep what He has done for you. And that is a gift. The assurance of our salvation is a gift, isn't it? The world today, even with people who at times will preach the truth about salvation, I hear often in our world today, how can I know I've been saved? The assurance, the witness of the Holy Spirit within that testifies to you about you. We have God's breathed Word that is a gift that can guide us in principle and understanding and revelation and can show us what a saved person might feel, what a saved person might think, what a saved person might do. But the knowledge and the assurance that you are really safe is a gift from God. And it's a wonderful gift. I don't want to talk about any of those gifts this morning. I want to talk about some other gifts that, as I was reading in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 this week, really jumped out to me. The gifts that God gives that I don't even at times view as a gift... Not because I think that they're, when I step back and I consider more deeply, not that I think they're of me. I don't know where I think they come from very often. I just, they're just here. They're just the product of a natural world, a series of causes and effects that happen in the world that I just benefit from. And as I've been studying this week and seeing in my own heart, I recognize how much that these things are a gift from the Lord. I want to read for you where this thought originated from today. Verse 24 and 25 of our scripture reading. I'm going to read verse 25 in a different version, so know that it's going to look different than yours, but I think it's more accurate to say this. So in Ecclesiastes 1 and 2, what the writer has done is he's brought before us Two realities that are painful to consider. In the first chapter, the writer says this, you know, I had great wealth. And I said within my heart, I want to experience pleasure. And so he says, I held nothing back from experiencing pleasure. He indulged All the desires, all the fantasies, everything that he thought would bring him pleasure. And it's incredible to read in chapter 1 that he actually had the resources to be able to indulge with no limits. And so if it was women that he desired, he indulged. If it was 
building something and seeing the success of building vineyards and building houses and building kingdoms and castles. And he just set his heart to do it. If he wanted people to be at his beck and call to command men and women both to be slaves, to do what he wanted them to do, then he purchased slaves and he uh, told them to do what he had commanded them to do. He held in his heart nothing back. And yet at the end of all of that, he comes to the conclusion, I found no pleasure in it. So when all the indulgences were finished and he was alone with his thoughts and with his hearts, he found that it was not satisfying. And so that was the first thought that brought him trouble about life. Is that if all we're here to do is eat, drink, and be merry, if all we're here to do is satiate this carnal flesh, I've done it, and there's nothing. And then he goes to the second part. Here's the second thing is, is it begins chapter 2 that began to give him trouble. Let's say that you and I labor our whole life, and we're intended to find meaning out of work. Work is a good thing that was... Before the fall of man, God gave to Adam and Eve work. And it's a good thing to have work. And we can develop that meaning out of that. But here he says, you know, as I was laboring and I was planning and I was considering all the things. And there is a joy that we can experience when we plan something. Something is placed in our heart and mind. We plan it, we carry out and execute the plan that we're setting forth to do, and we get to the end, and there's joy in the fruits of being able to sow strenuously and and try to navigate all the difficulties you might find. And whenever you finally are called to a harvest, a harvest is meant to bring joy. And he said, but then here's what dawned on me. One day, all of that, I'm going to pass to somebody else. And he uses the word all. Everything that I've labored to achieve and accumulate is going to pass on. And here's what is sad to me. I don't know if that man that I pass it on to is going to be wise or a fool. And you don't either. That which you strove to save and invest And sacrifice, perhaps those that you pass on to might waste in a meaningless fashion and spend in a way that you won't enjoy or that you would disapprove of. And so these two realities about our experience in life begin to hit him. And likely if you have any age at all, those things ought to hit you. And they ought to be governing considerations as how you live your life now based upon those two things. And so what we're reading here in just a moment is his conclusion that he draws from this. So then what do you do? If spending it ends up not bringing pleasure and saving it ends up being left to someone who might waste it, then if I can't spend it and I can't save it, what do I do with it? And he begins to reveal in verse 24 and 25 what we're to do with it. Look at verse 24. It says this. There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat 
and drink, and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God. Now let me read verse 25 in a different version. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without God? For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight wisdom, knowledge, and joy. So here's what this, the preacher here, that's what he's referred to throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. That's why I'm calling him that. This is what he says. Rather than strive to just indulge in pleasure, and rather than save strenuously for whatever you think might befall, here's what the right thing to do. Enjoy what God has given you. And recognize it solely comes from Him. That seems very simple, doesn't it? But here's the thought that we draw from this. It asks in verse 25 this rhetorical question. Can you enjoy these things unless God grants you the ability to enjoy them? And the answer to that is absolutely not. How many of you have striven to achieve and enjoy things and you accumulate those things and you store them up and then you go and your anticipation has been, once I have done this, I'm going to, with my family, enjoy all of these things only to come to that moment where you have achieved it and suddenly there is discord in your family and they're not granting you. You don't have the capacity to enjoy what you intended to enjoy or perhaps circumstances in life eventually change and you've saved and you've saved but then somebody dies with whom you expected to enjoy it with and so now all of your labor and anticipation is is worthless because you thought one day given this situation and scenario that I projected to happen, I would find enjoyment only to find that God had ordained things not to be so. And suddenly, you seek joy. How many of you have been on vacation before and you can't rest? Right, You find something out about work or about life. And you've set aside this time where all I want to do is get away from the the burdens and the tasks of responsibility. And so you set aside this time and we spend way too much money and you do all these things. And you, you, you set yourself up to enjoy what you can. And you get there and there's just one thing that you've learned about life or about somebody else's life. Perhaps somebody got a diagnosis. Perhaps something just changed in you. And you get there and all the circumstance was purposely designed by you to enjoy life. And you get there and you're miserable. I always think of the romanticizing that people do today of marriage and children. If I can just find the spouse. And so they sensationalize the ornate decorations of the wedding. And it's all focused on this grand portrayal and display. And it's always so deeply concerned me with Christian people. Are you investing that much energy, particularness, and concern in the marriage beyond the wedding? Because that is where the emphasis should lie. You see, this morning what I'm trying to say is, you can, this is what he says in verse 26, Unless God gives you joy, 
you're not going to have joy. Isn't that very different than what the heart tells us? That if I'll arrange my set of circumstances just right, then I'll step into those set of circumstances of my own creation and I'll find joy. But listen, you can't do that. God alone gives joy. I sit at my kitchen table often with my children, and you're no different than this. I sit there, and what to be thankful for, man? You know, like, just looking around that table, I could go through, and if I really, there's just so much that my heart should burst with gratitude. And yet I often sit there with dissatisfaction. Not in them. And not in all those things. It's that I'm not able to see what is right before me. I'm not able to enjoy because of my own fallen heart and my own sinfulness the magnitude of God's blessings that are sitting right before me. And so here's what I'm trying to say this morning. We are utterly dependent upon God for literally everything. Even the effects of those gifts that we regularly identify. I'm dependent upon God to help me enjoy the wife of my youth. That I would find companionship. Listen, you can arrange and you can have biblical counseling that says, listen, here are the constructs of a healthy marriage. And we can systematically show you from the scriptures. This is the quality that a man needs. This is a quality that a woman needs. And we can scaffold all of those things out and flesh all of those things out. And you could be the best student that there ever was and say, you know what? I want to be the man that God has created me to be. And so you faithfully apply yourself to carrying all of those things out but listen the product of things that are spiritual are not the product of arranging biblical things the right way the result is still a gift of God period faith we talked last week about hope and about hope being built upon faith so this morning, I want to ask you this question about your own. So, so think about this. When you hear the promises of God given to you, can you force yourself to believe them? Like if I get up here and I line out some argument for God's case and say, now believe it. And you say, okay. I'm going to believe it. And yet you and I both know that you just, you can't. You might want to believe it really bad. And yet you slip off into depression. Or you slip off into being anxious. Despite the fact that Jesus said, listen, don't be anxious for anything. And you say, well, I believe the Bible is true and that it's real and that I can depend on it. And so I tell you. God's own word says, don't be anxious. He'll provide for you. And you say, I believe it. But do you? Do you? And if not, can you? And the answer is you can't. Remember that man had a son? This is Mark chapter 9. 
he comes to Jesus and he says, it sounds like the boy was having seizures. It said, a, I think a dumb spirit is what they called it. It says he'd fall and he would seize and he'd foam with the mouth. And he was doing it in some inconvenient places, right? They'd have a fire going and all of a sudden he'd fall into the fire with seizings. And they'd gone everywhere and they tried to get him help. And they couldn't. They heard Jesus was there, and so they take their son to Jesus, and they're saying, listen, this is what's happening to him, and it happens all the time. And Jesus says, well, all things are possible to those who believe. And what profoundness came out of the man's mouth? Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I find it so um, relatable that it was the case that his belief was connected to his son. You know, like, there's this limitation that you have as a parent how far you can go with your children's anything. Turning out, being okay, either physically, anything. So he comes and he's, I think, me reading into it a little bit, He's exhausted from hopelessness. He's brought the child everywhere trying to get the healing. And it has failed and it has failed and it has failed. And he's probably received promises that, listen, this guy in this town a long way away was able to help somebody just like him. And so they took a trek all the way over there and they thought, you know what? This is going to do it this time. And it got better for a while. And then guess what? He began seizing again. And imagine, you know what it's like when hope is destroyed. And you feel like you're starting over. And so then you come and you say, I really want to believe that this is it. But listen, this morning I want to tell you, faith in God is a gift from God. The ability to believe. So what is the... So we've got to list of things that have gone through my mind that I'm not going to try even to get to this morning about these gifts. So if joy comes from the Lord alone, He has to give you the capacity to feel joy. And faith is a gift from the Lord. What are the implications of this reality? I think two things. Number one, there's probably more. It governs my prayer life, doesn't it? And two, it brings about great humility in me, doesn't it? Like for you to realize that you can't even get joy unless the Lord gives it to you. I can't even believe something sufficiently unless God helps me. What is that contrasted to? Well, the message today that if we'll just do this, and I'll just do that, and if you'll just put your mind to it, and if you'll just work hard enough, and you'll strive in your own strength. Listen, this this involves Christian disciplines. If you'll just pray hard enough, God will. Really? 
Because that sounds, doesn't it, like striving in my own strength will lead to this. Listen, it's completely of the Lord's discretion. God gives. Remember in the book of Romans in chapter 9, it says this. It's not him that willeth or him that striveth, but it's God that shows compassion upon whom he'll show compassion. See, what God is looking for is a condition of the heart, not a response of the mind. He's not looking our prayer life to say the right things in our prayer life. So let's say that you don't pray verbally. Let's say you pray mentally. And so as you pray, you're just, you're saying these things, Lord, I really believe you. I really believe. I'm not saying don't do that because that's often what prayer is, is it's this repetitive desire of the heart. But listen, it's not that you're not saying the right things and organizing your thoughts appropriately. That is not yielding the effect your desire. Rather, what God is looking for is a condition of the heart that he alone can create. I'm dependent upon the Lord this morning, utterly dependent, and so are you. So what does this mean in conclusion today? I think if we understood more fully how dependent we are on the Lord, we would turn to Him more, don't you think? Callan, it's our latest kid. He, uh, you know, it's just coming out of the stage that he's not so dependent anymore. It's a welcome relief to us. But there's something very enlightening about the state that he was in. Utterly dependent. And what did he do? Well, he had these groanings that could not be discerned. We didn't know what he was saying. He couldn't point. He couldn't identify even what he needed. But he just expressed his need for us. And so he would just cry out in desperation. Now, we're imperfect beings. We don't even know what he needs, right? So we'd start guessing. And so we'd try to feed him, and if that wouldn't work, we'd try to change him. And if that didn't work, we'd try to change the temperature in the room. If that didn't work, we'd, we'd try all of these things. But listen, I want you to know this morning, God doesn't have to do that. God knows exactly what you and I need. And he has the power and desire to gift those who are utterly dependent upon him. I have found in my spiritual life this, and I'm done this morning. I won't even say this right, so please be gracious in how you receive this. I hope the Lord will help you to understand what I'm trying to say this morning. There are times when in my own strength I'm striving to see something come to pass. And I begin to realize that it is not on the trajectory to do so. Like it's not, I'm not going to make it. So let's say I'm trying to convince somebody to seek the Lord. Let's say I'm trying to um, reignite a commitment in a Christian to go and really serve the Lord and live the way I ought to. And I begin to see through the series of circumstance, you know what, this ain't working. This just isn't working. 
Or let's say I'm praying for something to God. This is a better example. Let's say I'm praying to God for something. And I've been praying for a long time for it. And I'm just saying, this isn't going to happen. There's a part of me wrongfully that turns against God in my heart. And I think this. Lord, I have emptied myself before you. I have poured out everything that I know. And I can't figure out, Lord, why. This is for the good. What I'm desiring is not that I might consume it on my lust that I'm aware of. This is for the good, Lord. Why won't you allow this to come to pass? And I find myself getting this rejected state. Discouraged state. Maybe I'm alone in this. I hope not. I don't think so. I think very often people, you you pray for something that never occurs and you just get downtrodden. And I began, what God begins to reveal to me is that much of my fervent allegiance to Him is dependent upon Him giving me what I want and what I think I am creating of my own effort. That because I put forth this effort, I now deserve this. And if you will not hand it to me, the fault is yours. It reveals my own heart. You would think after you do something over and over and over again that you would learn. I don't. Because then I get to the end of that and I, God reveals to me that. Listen, do you, are you like Job? Though I slay you, yet you'll trust me? I mean, think about that word. If you kill me, I'm going to trust you, Lord. And then it breaks me that I had that attitude. And that brokenness is exactly what God wants. Do you understand the point? At the end of myself, when I see the evils of my own heart and I'm so broken that I don't care what I get and what I don't get and what God gives me and what I don't, and I'm in a state of heart of complete, utter brokenness where I say, Lord, I don't even know what I need anymore. I don't even know. I thought that's what I wanted. I thought that's what was right. But I don't even know anymore. And I don't even care anymore. I just want you and your will. That's what God wants. This morning, I'm reminded this week that everything that we are, everything that we have, both tangible and intangible, is solely a gift from God. So let me say this, and I'm done. When God has given you joy in a moment, and happiness in a moment. Enjoy it. Why? Because it's a gift that God gave you. Like, listen, when I give my kids a gift, I got rowdy boys. And there's a temptation when I give them a gift that I want them to be careful with it. 
But there are some gifts that I give that they're not meant to be careful with them. You know, like the whole objective of whatever it is, is meant to be used and spent up and enjoyed. And so there's this natural propensity that used to more be in me when I'd go spend my hard-earned money and I'd give them this and they'd take the basketball outside and I'd say, "Uh, it's raining, don't dribble it in the rain. Right? Or be more careful. But no, 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 that's not what God wants. That's not what we ought to want. A gift is meant to be enjoyed. So Solomon comes to the conclusion, don't go seek the ever-elusive pleasure that's flighty and don't save it for somebody else necessarily when God's gift has been given to you joy has been given enjoy it and recognize it as God given and so when you sit at that Thanksgiving table and all your loved ones are around and nothing is infecting those moments with anxiety and care and folly and responsibility. And there is peace and joy in your heart. (coughs) Relish God's gift. Isn't that awesome? That even in this fallen, broken world with fallen, broken people, God gives gifts that we can enjoy for just a moment. Because listen, the next day is going to change everything. You know that. The next season. And that's not the irony of it. The very next chapter, you know what it's about? The seasons. It's all about the seasons. There's a time for this and a time for that. But before he gets there, he's saying, I've given you a gift. Enjoy it this morning, I hope. Affected my heart this week. That's why I brought it before you today. I hope that God would use it to help you. That you would see things as God's gifts and that you would enjoy them as gifts from the Lord today. That's our message this morning.